Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast, brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here, as always, on the Greatest Games Podcast, a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. It could be their time as a head coach, a JV coach, a B-team coach, a cross-country coach, just whatever they consider to be their greatest game. Well, you know, Chris, I love the tease. We have both here today, but he is known as a basketball coach who also has won multiple state titles as a cross-country coach. We may get into it. I may still be crying some tears over his first couple, but we may be able to talk about that later. But you know what? Technology might cut off before we ever get to that. Who knows? But we have the legendary – we use that word. It was the first time we've used that word on this podcast. The legendary 637 win two state championship basketball, four state championships in cross country, former coach at Lexington High School here in South Carolina, Bailey Harris. Welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast. Ah, great to be here, especially with an intro like that. I don't know if I can top that. Might as well just sign on off. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that is that is one heck of an intro. Yeah, I just yeah. exit stage left now. <laughs> Coach, I was, I was reading in the notes we send out, and, and you asked, you said, uh, you know, we asked, is there anything else you would like Chris and Brian to know? And you said, looking forward to it, I assume we aren't talking about cross-country meets with Lexington and Ridgeview. Well, and I, <laughs> greatest games ever. Um, you know, I, I often get, you know, asked about, you know, different state championships or whatever, and um, – Roseville was uh, we were we were the believe it or not a couple of basketball guys we were the top of the cross country world there for a little while and um, it was us and them for the 4A title um, I think back to back years and uh, mm-hmm. the first year that we won it um, my oldest son who had run for me for six years was a senior and of all the state titles to have your son lead the way and have he had his biggest day of his high school career to lead the way to like a fourth place finish and lead our team to to a win was was pretty big and um uh that that, that was pretty special it was it was and, awesome and beating brian that was pretty special here's the thing yeah coach. uh coach here's we, the we thing had been, we had been you, close all year and and um we just felt pretty good about it, it was it was close but uh we had we had a good day at the right time like you have to do in any other sports you got to get fortunate and have a good day at the right time <laughs> Here's the difference. You probably knew what you were doing. Brian clearly just had great athletes. Oh, <laughs> goodness. There's the first shot. There it is. There it is. He's my good friend and co-host, and he's the one firing the shots. I just don't understand. No, they, were, don't they were solid. I mean, we were back-to-back years. It was us and it was Lexington and Ridgeview for the – for 4A and, you know, cross-country in South Carolina is, you know, a pretty strong sport. It, it really is. I, you know, and I've – I admittedly, as Chris is joking about, I knew nothing about cross country before taking the job. And I learned as much as I could for nine years as coaching those kids and loved every minute of it. And if, if folks have never seen a cross country meet, now this is pre pandemic, of course, but absolutely nuts. What an atmosphere. Like we love basketball. Yeah. We love all, but like, thousands and thousands of people hundreds and hundreds of kids running a race gun goes off boom here we go it's indescribable how exciting it is it's really it's incredible it is and it's the only sport i tell people all the time it's over with the horn goes off the game's over with and you still don't know who won that's right that's right <laughs> you know you're still you're still waiting to figure out who won and i, I am still coaching cross country I, you know i retired from basketball and teaching at Lakes, and I, I i did retain uh, cross country and just the you know being able to coach kids and be around kids and still have that uh, relationship with kids has been big. I, I don't know that I would have been able to make it cold turkey retirement um, without the cross country. I went to a couple of those meets when Brian was coaching. Some of those big, those yeah, those meets out at Sand Hill, Brian. Some of those, yeah. it was seven hundred teams and four thousand kids. It was yeah. crazy, but yes, a fun atmosphere. Uh, Coach, why don't you take us through uh, your resume in coaching and how you got to retirement? <laughs> All right, um, I, I started. You know, I thought I was going to be a college basketball player. I went to Presbyterian College. I signed under Butch Estes and thought I was a basketball player. Had a good high school career and got to college and just didn't really make the adjustment from scoring point guard to a setup point guard. It, it wasn't that I wasn't willing. It just I wasn't good at what my skill set. So uh, I was getting out of basketball and uh, Butch Estes. I guess you'd have been around a while to know no Estes, but. Uh, he and uh, Greg Nybert was his assistant um, at, at Presbyterian there. 
Um, he just said, you know, like for you to stick around and do something. So the, 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 the next year I stuck around and, and like kept stats and drove a van. That's back when you could give a 19 year old the keys and have him drive a team all over the state. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I was probably more valuable as a van driver than anything else that year. And then um, he really let me grow into be a student assistant. And that was back in the day when an NAI school PC at the time, you only had one assistant. So I was the second assistant as a student. So I got a lot of responsibilities and duties. Um, my senior year, I even got to coach the JV team a good bit. Claim to fame, I got to coach Barkley Radeball there when he was a freshman. I like to give him grief and remind him of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I got a ton of experience, um, you know, in, in my junior and senior year in college because they, you know, if you're a GA now, you're fifth or sixth down the list. But at that time, even though I was a student assistant, I was the number two guy because you just didn't have staff. And I'm with Greg Nybert and Butch Estes and then one year with Jimmy Gaffney. So, I mean, I was with some really good basketball minds. And um, I'm not exactly sure how it came about, but I, I became the uh, youngest head college coach in the country the next year. My first year out, I got the head women's coaching job at Coastal Carolina. Um, I think partly because they were tied up in a lawsuit with the previous coach that had been fired and they didn't have a lot of money to offer. So that kind of limited their pool. Um, Bobby Richardson was the AD. And I was like, I'll take whatever job Bobby Richardson offers me just to be around a guy like that. And that was, mm-hmm. that was one of the, you, you talk about learning from greatness. He was just a phenomenal individual to be around. So I was the, the women's coach at coastal Carolina for a year. And then coach Richardson resigned and was like, you got to get out of here. This place is falling apart. They had, it, it, it was big transition year for coastal and they were, they were having a lot of issues. So I got lucky in that Estes had moved to Furman um, and had an open spot as a GA. So I went to Furman as a GA, got my master's. Um, and then kind of another one of those little twists and turns where the NCAA was proposing legislation to limit the number of coaches in two years. So I'm thinking, all right, in two years, I'm going to be getting out and I'm going to be trying to get a full-time gig and they're going to be cutting a position at every D1 school. This is, this is not good timing. Um, so I went ahead and finished my master's early and, I looked at like three different high school jobs and the last one I wanted uh, was Lexington and the Lord just opened and closed doors. And I ended up in you know Lexington where I didn't know a soul. And 33 years later, um, uh, I think Lexington is the greatest place on earth. So uh, the Lord just really opened and closed some doors there. Coach, where did you grow up? I claim Clinton, South Carolina. Okay. Um, we, we moved a couple different places. I spent 10 years uh, in McCormick, South Carolina, and if you can find it, it's because you've either been lost or been to Hickory Knob to play golf um, or camping. Um, my dad worked at a children's home there, and um, then we moved to Clinton my senior year in high school, and I graduated from Thornhill and went to PC, and my family stayed there. So I, I claim Clinton, but a little bit of everywhere in the state. Well, I lived in South Carolina for 10 years never heard of McCormick. So yeah, I you, <laughs> Yeah, you missed a whole lot. But uh, you mentioned some names there. I just wanted to throw it out there for our listeners of shows. We have talked about Butch Estes on the show. We have talked about Greg Nybert on the show. We have talked about Barkley Radeball on the show with a lot of other coaches. And then you brought up another great name, Bobby Richardson. Obviously, the South Carolina people know him well. And I know Brian knows uh, uh, Bobby very well. Him and Bobby Richardson, his dad, grew up together. I know Brian's known Bobby, you know, most of his life. Um, but those are some just awesome mentors doors that you yeah. can you talk about that those those yeah, people I mean, what they meant to you yeah and then throw in the fact that when i'm at pc callie galt was also the the uh ad and head football coach there and my dad was the uh associate at first grad callie sang in the choir so even though i didn't play football callie kind of looked out for me because he, he you know he knew me from church he knew my dad and callie galt i mean you just you just don't get a more gracious man that knows how to treat people. And that, that was really the thing with he and Bobby Richardson. I mean, one's a baseball coach and one's a football coach. And I learned just, just by watching how they treated people. I mean, they were just so good. Um, coach Galt, um, even one of the times I was looking at leaving Lexington, you know, I, I talked to Coach Galt about it, and, and he gave me good advice on that. Um, coach Richardson, I moved down there, and I was actually supposed to move into an apartment. I, I've got every, you know, I'm 22 years old. i got everything I own in my car. I, I get to Conway. And my apartment wasn't ready. And the lady's like, well, it'll be probably three more weeks before you can move in. I'm like, uh, I'm just kind of stuck here. And Coach Richardson's like, no problem. Um, you, you'll live with me. So I lived with Coach Richardson at his house for three weeks, you know, and just he, he really just took me under his wing. And, and again, not, not about the sport, but about how to treat people. And both of those two guys were just 
I, I don't know if you can get any better role models for that. That's so interesting. And, and Chris, I love, I love that question. And then one of the questions that I had as you were talking was like, what makes a great athletic director? And I think you just answered that somebody that's going to allow you to stay at their house and just really, really care about you as a person. So I'm not even going to ask you that question. So I'm going to ask you a different question. What makes a good assistant coach? Now I'm asking that because you've been an assistant coach and you have one of the most extensive assistant coaching now head coaching trees in South Carolina and beyond. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes a great assistant coach. I think everybody should be a grad assistant at some point in their life. Um, you just, to me, that that's where you, you, and I think you were, you were that as well. You, you have to take that attitude as an assistant of, I'll do basically anything that's legal here. Um, and, and I'll have no ego about it. If it's sweep the floor, if it's go pick up the laundry, if it's take the coach's kids somewhere, pick somebody up. You just got to be willing to do whatever and not worried about punching a clock. Um, always wanted, when I was looking to hire assistant coaches, always wanted, um, I say always wanted, there, there's kind of two categories. I, I typically was looking for assistant coaches that wanted to be head coaches because I felt like those guys were hungry. But I also was very fortunate and had a couple of assistant coaches for a very long time that had already been head coaches, and they had that uh, that confidence in themselves that they wouldn't they wouldn't just take a yes if they didn't agree with you. I had Jim Parker was my assistant for a long time, who had been head coach at Columbia High School for a long time, and then my former high school coach Joey Reed was my assistant my last sixteen years at Lexington. So I always had that older guy on the staff too that had been a head coach, and I think those guys they're 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 not trying to impress you. So they don't just tell you yes if they disagree with you. Um, and, and I always felt like that made a good blend. I mean, because you're always trying to look for that young guy that's wanting to move up and is hungry and is willing to, you know, do whatever. But I think having that blend on your staff is, is, is very key. I, Coach, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think you see that a lot, especially with college coaches, guys who are young and get a head job at a big school, and they don't always necessarily bring someone like that on board, some of the older sort of mentor coach that's been a head coach and, right, is willing to say, like, listen, that's a stupid idea. And I know because I've been through the wars, you know. Yeah, you, you can't have, an, you can't have a, a, an assistant coaching staff that's just going to tell you everything you say is a good idea. You're, you're not going to stick around very long. That <laughs> uh, coach, this is an interesting question. Um, is there like a – if you were recommending to a young coach a book to read about coaching or about mentoring or about, you know, just, just the kind of life you're going to lead in coaching, do, do you have any book that you would recommend? Uh, a couple of great books on leadership. Lead for God's sake. Um, I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, it's a story, and the, and the coach basically learns from the janitor in the school all that he needs to know um, about coaching and treating people. And it, you know, it's kind of the you know that mentality that of how you treat people. Um, that that's a, a really good one. Um, that 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 that's probably as good as any. Um, I like. Um, the 3D coaching book, um, Jeff Duke, um, there's an FCA guy uh, that was at Florida State with Bowden that, that talks about coaching in the three dimensions um, that you've got to, when, when you're, uh, I kind of wish I'd had some of this when I was younger, um, that you've got to teach a kid the physical skills, you've got you've to also teach and coach their emotional side and then also their um, religious side of, of it. There's three different dimensions to coaching kids. and. Um, uh, and how to handle each of those three dimensions. That, that's pretty helpful as well. Lead for God's Sake is written by Todd Gongwer. I'm just looking at it. The lives yep. of an intensely driven basketball coach, an ultra-successful CEO, and an unassuming janitor all intersect. Interesting. Yeah, really good book. Coach, I'm interested in this one. You know, AAU club basketball has gotten so, so much bigger here the last few years. And it seems like um, uh, recruiting services are, are more popular than ever. And kids and, and even parents may have an inflated view of, of abilities that these kids have. So I'm curious to what you believe right now is the proper role for parents in the development of kids as basketball players right now proper role for parents in the development of student athlete basketball in particular is to teach their child 
to be on time to practice, respectful of the coach and their teammates and their teachers, do their homework, be a good citizen, um, et cetera, et cetera. The rest of it is up to the coach to take care of. And if the, if the parent teaches the kid those kind of things, the kid's going to be successful whether basketball turns out or not. The, the kind of the way I kind of tried to tell that to my parents at parents' meetings that I always had um, before the season started at various times was uh, my, my, my advice to parents was prepare your child for the path. Don't try to prepare the path for your child. You know, let them, let them fall down. Let them, let them get up, dust it off. I always tried to encourage parents, look, if your kid's got a problem with the teacher, don't, don't contact the teacher. Get, get your child to contact the teacher. If the child's got, if, if they've got a contact, a problem with me, or get them to contact me or the coach and let them learn to handle the situation. If they're going, you know, there might be times where you got to step in, but if they've got a dentist appointment, that's easy. Get the, get the kid to talk to the coach or the teacher. And, um, you know, quick, I think we've kind of gotten in that age where parents are trying to line everything up for their kids. So my, my big message was kind of, you know, prepare your kid for the path, not the path for your kid. I think what Ryan, we're going to do that, is write that down. What we're going to do sure. is, <laughs> I promise you, I stole it from somebody. I don't like anything else. In my we're we're gonna take that. Right? Yeah, we're gonna take that audio clip and put it on our new website. Whenever we get that, that's gonna be like our header. It's just gonna be on a loop. Just, <laughs> just parents, please watch this. Please watch this. I, I, I was waiting. I was chomping at the bit to ask that question because I knew it was gonna be a, a knock it out of the park answer. Yeah, all, the all, coaching is, all coaching is is just finding phrases and offenses and drills that work good and steal them for yourself. Right. That's right. That's right. There's coach, I read, I read years ago, a guy said, uh, a guy has like a coaching website, a parenting website for a kid, for athletes. And he said, there's three things you should tell your kid before the game, tell them you love them, tell them to have fun and tell them to try their best. And after the game, ask them three – or tell them three things. Tell them you love them, ask them if they had fun, and ask them if they tried their best. And that's it. That's your role as a parent. Yeah, and I had to, I had to kind of do that a little bit myself because my kids were athletes, and, um, and, and I'm, I'm really kind of glad both my boys ended up being runners and, and stopped. They were both pretty good basketball players, but by middle school and JV, they stopped and just focused on running. Um, and I found myself – you know, one time after a game, I'm kind of wondering, you know, if I was like, oh, I wonder why he didn't play a little more. I didn't, you know, I had a great JV coach. I wasn't questioning him. Um, my son, you know, knew without question why, why he didn't play more, what he needed to do more. And, and I'm like, God, that was tough for me to, to kind of bite my tongue. So I know it's tough for parents to do, but, you know, the more they can do that and let their kids handle it good. Hey, other good, other good book I want to throw out there is phenomenal. Went through it. Um, we did this with Ben Lippin last year, went through it with their players, a book called Teammates Matter. Um, great story. It's a guy that was a walk-on at Wake Forest, and, and he played for Skip Prosser and Dave Oak. And uh, he tells the story of going through life as a walk-on. It's just a great basketball book because he's talking about playing with Robert O'Kelly and all these great basketball players. Uh, Pat Kelsey, who's now at Winthrop, is one of the assistant coaches in there. And, and if you're a Carolina fan, you, you, know, you know Dave Odom. You know, he was at Wake at that time. That's uh, that that's probably my other big book, and and we did that as a uh, almost just like a study with uh, with the basketball team last year at Ben Lippin, and, and had a good time going through that book. Teammates matter. And again, talking about how you treat your teammates. Yeah, a, that is. God, Brian. It's a that's another great one. I'll tell you what, I'm just having <laughs> idea after idea. I think we need to hire Bailey Harris. This is what we're going to do, Chris. Hire Bailey Harris to do a book study on zoom since we're still in, in, in quasi quarantine here and I can see uh, he's excited. So we, I think we just hired yeah, him. Really? But yeah, it's, 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 it's so, there's so many great things out there. So many great resources. That's another good Co one. coach Harris. What's great about the job we're going to hire you for is it pays no money. <laughs> hey, that's good. I'm good at those. You'll get your, you'll get your money's worth. <laughs> that's right. Coach, right. What's, one, what's one word or phrase you want people to associate with your time at Lexington? And, and, you know, what you did there at Lexington High School as a basketball coach. Uh, I hope they'll remember that, I, that everything we did, we tried to make the kids the best person they could be first and then the best athlete they could be second and then put together the best team that we could out of, of the kids we had regardless of what the sport was. That we, we were all about trying to get them better as an individual 
and then put them together as a team and, an, and a group of athletes. And I will attest as a, as a bystander, interested bystander, is what he did. It was, it was a phenomenal program, still is a phenomenal program, but to, to do what you did over that time, it was incredible. And we're going to hear a little bit more about it. So, Coach, we're going to go ahead and move into the, the creme de la creme of the Greatest Games podcast and hear about your greatest game. So take us into the gym. Let's, let's just let's feel it. Let's hear about your greatest All games. Right. Well, that is uh... – you know, when you send that out, I'm thinking, now you've got to narrow down 800 and something basketball games. You've got to pick a game. I mean, I got it down to four, and, and, and my family's like, you're going to leave out this game? I'm like, <laughs> Well, see, that, know, means, that means we have you back for part two or part three yeah, or part 16. So I, That's I, okay. I got it down to two. I mean, I, you know, 32 years, getting it down to two was pretty good. And then, and, and admittedly, I'm leaving out the best game I ever watched, okay? I'm just – be up front with that. The best game I ever watched, we're not going to talk about, was Berkeley-Lexington with Bruce Ellington versus Shaq Rowland. And I remember sitting there during the game going, wow, this is fun. And then I thought, wait a minute, somebody's going to lose and it's over with here. I mean, they were, they just put on the show. I mean, I felt like I needed to pay when I left that one. That was fun. Um, greatest game, though, I, I, I got to go slight nod, 96 state championship game. Uh, Lexington versus Irmo. Now, in 96, Lexington-Irmo, the, the rivalry on that thing was off the charts. I mean, like you had to uh, – I mean, it just I – don't, I don't see a rivalry like that right now. Lexington and, and uh, River Bluff and, and Irmo and Dutch Fork have replaced that. That old-school Lexington-Irmo rivalry, it was just nasty. And um, it, it, it was rough. And they had beat us – 15 consecutive times. They had won the state championship in 94 and 95 with B.J. Mackey um, and had beat us 15 times in a row, including twice during the regular season that year. Uh, we played them in a non-conference game, obviously being the rival. Uh, you know, some years we were in the same region. This, this year, obviously, we happened to be upper state, lower state. And uh, I think they were lower state and we were upper. And um, we got matched up in 96 for the finals. And, again, you've lost 15 straight times to them. And the state newspaper did us the favor of printing the score to every single one of those games uh, in the sports section the day of the game. I'm like, great here. Um, and, like I said, they were going for a three-peat. And um, some, somehow, some way, uh, we, we found a way to win. And what I think some people would, would refer to as the ugliest game and not the greatest game um, because – we would have had a, we, we would have been a major shot clock violation. We basically held the ball for the last 12 minutes of the game. Oh. <laughs> um, and ironic, though, the final score is 46-33. Dorman and Irmo played two years ago. Nobody held the ball. And the final score was 46-40 or, or yeah, um, like – 46 35 it was like two points difference and nobody held the ball so you know sometimes the ball goes in and sometimes it doesn't um but we were there there was a lot of backstory with the, with the lexington irmo game there because you had tim heskett was our best player and i uh, went on to play at oklahoma and heskett's best friends were uh, mac and joey harper that that played at irmo and they were like best of buddies and tim was zero and nine against irmo and is or or Owen yeah, Owen eight, no seven I guess okay, played four years Owen seven, and had really not played real well against them, and um, he he was one of those guys that just had the confidence that somehow we were going to get it done, um, and, and we did, and um, I, I got to give credit in that game Brett Jones, um, one of the best players I've ever coached and and one of the best coaches I've been associated with, um. He was my assistant coach at the time. He had played for me as assistant coach. And, and going into the game, he's like, Coach, just you let me take the defense. And, you know, I've got, I know what they're going to do. I got this figured out. You let me take the defense. And we were pretty much matchup zone at the time. He said, you let me take the defense. You take the offense, and, and we can get these guys. And, um, you know, we held them 33 points. So, obviously, Brett knew what he was talking about defensively there. What uh, – where was the game? Uh, that was back when you played in the um, – in the old Coliseum and it was packed and it was, it was packed and going nuts. Um, um, and, you know, it's such a rivalry anyway, it would have probably been packed regardless, but then you're playing for the marbles 
And um, I think we, we got off to a little bit of a slow start, and we were up uh, – I remember Tyson Balk night um, hitting a four-point play, hit a three, gets fouled, gets a four-point play, gets us a slight lead. We go into the half, I think we're up 24-20, and nobody's held the ball. We were just both pretty methodical, um, both pretty good defensive teams. Obviously, neither one of us could score. Um, <laughs> 24-20, and I wanted to hold the ball. I wanted to pull the ball out and hold the ball because I just I, – I did not think they would come play us man because I just didn't think that Whipple would do that. And, and now, 25 years later, I know for you – know, no, he's not going to. That's just not – he's not going to do that. Um, and they had a small they had a small point guard, Matt McKenzie, who's really good point guard, um, but he was small. And uh, we weren't big, but we had bigger guards, six two or three, and and I and I was the same size our post players were. And and I knew we could could just throw the ball over the top and, and they were gonna have a hard time matching up or pressuring us. And um so I'm I lost the argument at halftime with the coaches. I wanted to hold the ball from the from the start in the second half. They're like, no, we're not doing that. Okay, so we played. And we played four minutes, and nobody scored, and, and uh, not holding it. And then we get a three-point play. Lamont Davis, um, one of our subs off the bench, one of the Davis twins, gets a three-point play. We go up 27-20. They go down to the other end. I turn to the bench. I said, all right, if we get the rebound and we're up seven, we're, I'm calling timeout. We're holding the ball the rest of the game. And they're looking at me like, you're nuts. We stopped, and we got it back. We called timeout. And I told them when they canceled, look, guys, we're, we're, we're not shooting the ball again. It's either going to be a layup or a free throw. And um, you just got to believe that if we do that, they will not get us. And guys did a pretty pretty phenomenal job of executing that. We ended up pulling away and winning about 13 points. What kind of – did you just stand there with the ball or was it just kind of like a move it around the perimeter? We kind of just moved it around the perimeter, and like I said, had had two two guards with some size, Tyson Balknight and Teron Wright, who were both about six three. Uh, they were really my two biggest players, and and really kind of put them up top, and and they just kind of back and forth over the top, and with you know if they gambled, and you know they they again they didn't they didn't match up because that just that's not uh, what Coach Whipple believes in doing, and I'm certainly not questioning anything he does because I think he's the absolute best in the business. Um, and when somebody would gamble or something, we'd have somebody on the backside. We, you know, we'd take that, you know, we'd take that layup on the block. Or otherwise, we, we were a good free throw shooting team. And we just, you know, again, free throws and layups, and knew that they were going to have a hard time scoring a lot of points. And like I say, I'm sure it wasn't real pretty um, to watch, but I wasn't really worried about that to be honest. Yeah. Well, see, that's what I'm interested in. So this is the second game in a row. We had the great JoJo Cadre, who was at Padilla School in Georgia for last episode, episode 44, talking about a greatest game where USC beat Florida, the buzzer, Travis Kraft banging in a three at the buzzer, which was incredible. So that building, and we talked about it on the air, how how much I love that building. And it's a, such a great atmosphere. The seats are so steep. I mean, please don't fall down the steps there because you're going to hit the floor. But if it's packed there and now y'all start Start holding the basketball. What happens to the atmosphere? This is state championship basketball. Two schools that are 13 miles away, heated rivalry. They beat you 15 times in a row. You're up on them, and now you hold the ball. What is going on in the arena at that point? I mean, I'm sure I got yelled at a few times to shoot the ball or do something, <laughs> but that place was rocking. It was loud, and and our people were going nuts because we're we're actually beating Irmo, so they were very loud. And, and Irmo's yelling loud, trying to get them in. So the atmosphere was still really good. It wasn't like you pulled it out and held the ball under your arm. I mean, they were always – they were trying to kind of trap a little bit and pressure the ball a little bit. And um, we just didn't turn it over and um, and, and made a, enough shots. I think Heskett took one jump shot, um, and he made it. And I called timeout. I'm like, you do that again, you're, never, you're not going back in. You're, <laughs> you're not know, going to Oklahoma, you do that again. Yeah, yeah I'm calling Kelvin Sampson, and you're staying <laughs> home. <laughs> and and he had, and to his credit, he, you know, he could have made that shot all day long, but he had to be willing. Like, look, the only way we're going to get them back in it is to give them the ball. Um, and and we were like, I say we were very. Yeah, that that team just had some really good, solid ball handlers. I think we went with an extra point guard or two. Um, you know, you had Heskett who, who he didn't turn the ball over to Ron Wright. Uh, ended up playing at Air Force Academy, coaching at Air Force Academy. Just you know, those guys that didn't make a mistake. A um, couple guys like that. A couple guys ended up being coaches. Jason Harmon, who's coached at Northside Christian, was on that team. Uh, Tad Smith is another guard that, that's coaching uh, girls' high school in Kentucky. So I think I had like four or five coaches on that team. 
And um, that's not a just, shock that you would have a winning team. <laughs> would, no, seriously, you yeah, you, you win with smart players. You do. Yep. What? Uh, so this was not that dramatic a game the last couple minutes. So what, no. were you, what were you thinking those last couple minutes? You know, was this your first state title? Yeah, yeah. Make make free throws and, and don't screw it up. And I think we had um, the, the moment where you kind of knew, all right, they're, they're not getting back. So we kept it at double digits. Um, but the moment you kind of knew where they weren't getting back in, it was one of those uh, – it was kind of like the Georgetown Sleepy Floyd um, North Carolina pass, except the game wasn't that close. But I think they had gotten it to – it may have been an eight, nine, kind of teetering right on the double digits. And um, Tad Smith had missed a free throw. And um, for, for some reason, I don't know, he had hung his head or whatever. He didn't sprint back. So he was kind of behind the play. And, and whoever got the rebound for Irma, I think it was Trey Estes, kind of waited for it to clear out and then goes to flick an outlet pass over to the point guard. And, and Tad literally walked into it, grabs it, turns around and lays it up. And you're like, okay, we're, we're, we're good here. They're not, they're not coming back over that. They didn't, you know. And um, it was just, a, you know, at the end of the game, uh, we were able to actually sub out and, and, and get everybody in the game at the end. It, we had enough of a, of a handle on it at the end that we were able to, to sub out. And um, like I say, they, Irma had won two in a row coming into that. But, they, you know, they didn't have B.J. Mackey. They, they were not nearly as, as loaded as they had been um, the last two years. But, honestly, it's one of those things, just getting over the hump. I mean, we had had several opportunities to beat them in the past and just, you know, you, you couldn't get over that hump. You, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations before where, you know, either you know you're going to win or you know you're going to lose because of, of you know, the, the jersey that other teams wear and you just can't get over the hump. And for us, it was huge to get over the hump. And then the next year, they were still good. We went and beat them three times uh, the next year. I'm not sure we beat Irmo since then, hardly, but um, <laughs> in, any win over a Whipple team, you've, you've earned it for sure. And coach, when the other team shows up, I know my team's going to lose. Whipple just uh, – I, I really think he's – I really give him the credit as being, I think, the best in South Carolina because he's and he's shifted with the times because he's had a, a different style and group of players and he's, he's able to, to, to maintain his core philosophy of what he wants to do with different types and styles of players and, and still get it done over the years. So – uh, I guess that's probably one of the reasons we count that as, a, as, a, as the greatest win other than the first state championship is, you know, you were able to beat a, a Whipple coach team, uh, which meant you had done something for sure and, and kind of breaking through there. I think it's so cool looking back at that. You were in your roughly, well, what, seventh, eighth, ninth year as a head coach right. about that time. Yeah. Uh, Whipple, you know, around 10th year or whatever. He just yeah, finished his – I think he's six years ahead of me. Um, okay. Okay. So, it, and he just finished his 40th year. You put in 32, 33 years at Lexington, over yeah. 1,300 wins between the two of you. I think it's so neat to look back at, at, the, at, that, at that game there in the mid-90s and see, like, two young coaches that just fast forward 25, 30 years were still doing it at a high level. And I think – I just – I don't know. I just wanted to, to highlight that. I think that's really, really neat. He's, yeah, I think he's one both of the best of all time. Yeah, I think both of us have gotten Final Four and even championships in four different decades, which mm. is the same school. Um, you just don't see that a lot. But, I, I mean, his record – my record against him is not very good. But, uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll edit that out. Don't, don't worry I, about that. I don't, think, I don't think I'm alone in, in that category. There. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, all they, right. They, well, always that. they always show that in baseball, Coach. I'm a baseball fan. They'll show a guy, like, going against Clayton Kershaw, and they're like, he's one for 17 against Clayton Kershaw. Well, so is everybody else. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, Coach. Well, uh, we know you've got a second game, so take us into that, Jim, there for, for your second greatest game as the thunder is rolling here in Columbia, yeah. South Carolina. So hopefully I don't lose y'all. But if, y'all, if I do, y'all keep rolling. Yeah. Um, again, tons of them. The, the, the Berkeley overtime game with Ellington and Shaq would, would have certainly been there. Uh, my wife's like, you're not going to talk about the double overtime upper state game against, uh, against Lawrence where, you know, the the game actually – we thought it was over. Everybody storms the court. 
The referee puts two seconds back on the clock. And by the time they got everything squared away, they realized the clock keeper had left the gym and had to go get somebody else to keep the clock for the last two <laughs> seconds of the game. Um, you know, the, the, the Dorman Upper State game in 2000 or with, with Sheldon Everett in that crowd. Um, but I, I really um, – yeah, I'm a history guy, so I'm kind of one, one of my things that I'm teaching history is always, you know, you almost got to give things. I say you always got to give presidents about 20 years. You know, you got to look back 20 years later and decide whether this was a good idea or a bad idea. So I hesitated a little bit, but I went with, with my, my last, a win in my last year because I think this is going to stand the test of time. And I think 20 years from now, and I'm looking back, uh, this, this game will still be there. Um, Lexington at River Bluff, last game of the regular season, my last year of coaching. Um, I haven't announced I'm retiring, but I pretty much know in my in my heart that this is it. I just hadn't announced it yet. Um, I had a team that it's the worst looking basketball team I believe I've ever coached. As far as like if we walked in the gym, you would like okay, where's the team? Um, we we were we just didn't look very good, and actually probably helped us out because I don't think people really took us super serious, especially at a tournament or something. Um, but bottom line, we're going into this River Bluff game, last game of the regular season. We're 25-0. and 0. Um, River Bluff's pretty good. I mean, they're, 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 they're definitely a capable squad uh, that year. And um, we had already clinched the region. We, don't, we, we beat them at our place, and we beat them pretty bad, but we shot the lights out, and I knew that wasn't going to happen again. We, just, we, we, had, we had hammered them, but we, just, we really shot it well. So we're going over there. We're 25-0, and 0, and – but we've already clinched the region, so really nothing's on the line. But when you're playing your arch rival, that, that's just not a true statement. You know, it's going to make their season if they get us. Um, and they were good. They were very capable of winning. Another one of my former players coaching there, Ben Lee's the head coach there, um, who had played for me um, and also been an assistant with me. So, you know, so knows me very well, knows what I want to do. And we're down – and you talk about a nuts atmosphere. I mean, they were both, both student bodies were, were all in. We're 25 and 0. They they had already won 20. Their their best season ever, and um, we're down 10 with two minutes to go. And uh, in the last two minutes of that game, had four different players make a three point play, either a natural three or a three point play. Four different guys on the floor. Um, we tie it up. They miss a free throw. We get the ball coming down. And uh, I think everybody in the gym knew what we were going to do. We were going to get the ball to Mason Carver and let him make a play. Um, we had the, – the Friday before, we'd been in the exact same scenario uh, at Dutch Fork, and Carver scored with uh, .9 on the clock uh, to win the game. And um, we just try to ISO him or screen and roll, kind of depending on what – how they're playing things defensively. And uh, we just – we got Carver the ball, and uh, this time he scored with uh, .9 four left on the clock to win it. So back-to-back Fridays, he has a, a point-something left on the clock game winner. Um, and, and you come, again, you come from down 10 with two minutes to go uh, to, to win. And, and obviously everybody knew Carver was going to get the ball at the end to make the play. But you had three threes and a three-point play by different guys to get it tied up. And then you obviously you had to get some stops and some rebounds in there. And um, that kept us at 26-0. and 0, And um, of all the teams I had, never had anybody that went undefeated in the regular season. And um, you know, even though they didn't win the whole thing, um, that, that team ended up going 29-1 and one and getting beat by Berkeley in the lower state. And um, that, that was pretty phenomenal atmosphere and comeback win. That's a great. Uh, that's a great last regular season game to go out on. Like you said, your only undefeated regular season team. I just love the fact, Coach, that we got Mrs. Harris involved in the decision making process here for what we were going to talk about on the podcast. No, no question. I mean, that's, <laughs> no, no question. She um, she is in the uh, coaches' wives Hall of Fame. I assure you. You get these coach, you get these coaches' wives, and they're like, you know, I couldn't get the kids to the game, a Friday night home game. You got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old. I'm thinking, I mean, I remember Beth with with three kids in a tournament when nobody's old enough to go to school, and it, it didn't matter if it was a weeknight or what. I mean, they were in the gym at the games. Um, you know, not, nothing but incredible support there, and, and Beth could probably go through the whole list of games. Um, she she got a little. 
she didn't like the new the, the new technology when we got to. She was a little more used to popping in the VCR tapes when I was, you know, watching tapes or something. She she kind of hated when that era went away and you went to, you know, watching on your iPad and, you know, that kind of stuff. So she, oh, she, she was a little more of the old school coach's wife on that part of it. I got two funny coaching wife stories. One, Dave Odom, one year at our first practice, before the practice, he's meeting with our guys and he tells our guys, listen, the next six months, it's all about basketball. He said, every year on October 15th, I wake up early in the morning, I kiss my wife on the forehead, and I say, see you in April. <laughs> and he goes, you got to have a great wife for that. And then, That's, go ahead. Go ahead. You Go talk ahead. about Coach Holt uh, watching film and your wife popping in the tape. There was an old Coach Holt story that he talks about how in his little room where he watched film in his house, he only had one chair and a little table where he would take notes. And someone said, why don't you have a second chair in there? He said, "He because if I did, my wife would sit down and talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, um, I, was, I, was a, I was always a late-night tape watcher. Like, after the game, I never could sleep after the game, so I would always end up um, – I'd wait till she went to bed after the game, and then I'd, I'd usually end up watching the tape because I can't I just can't sleep after games. So, that was always kind of my routine was watching it late night afterwards. Then I'd fold laundry or something. I wouldn't any sense in trying to go to bed after a game. So That's right. That's right. That time to decompress. Coach, we found a video. We're yeah. going to post this uh, this link in the show notes when we publish this episode of, of Carver going down the lane. There's a couple of things that I love about this video, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. One, the first thing is the greatest movie of all time, which, of course, Chris, is Hoosiers, right? Yep. So as Carver catches it, he does the Jimmy Chitwood, and he looks up at the clock, and he's got it's, that's the most beautiful Jimmy Chitwood impression I've ever seen. I know Chris is just going nuts over the fact that I just mentioned Hoosiers on the air once again. But uh, how do you, how do you like that movie, Chris? Yes or no? You, you, uh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Overrated. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 get you into movie recovery for that. The second thing is unbelievable. Uh, inside out hesitation between the legs get in the lane he gets bumped and there's a no call which i think is a beautiful thing from a high school league standpoint a referee standpoint in south carolina it's an unbelievable again we'll put that, in, that link in the show notes but talk about that final play just in detail be that bump and it's incredible looking at that mason carver is probably the most underrated player i've ever coached um in all my years when i say underrated um i'm gonna base that off of his college recruiting he, he was we called him six feet tall that might have been cheating you know 155 60 pounds and I think people looked at him and thought oh yeah he's just the old Lexington you know sit out there and shoot the three kind of guy which he can but he's a he's way more athletic kid than than looks if you want to pull up a clip um we go baseline out of bounds lob play and he dumps one two hands on Tonka Hemingway um Tonka Hemingway is uh, Carolina fans will will come to love him as a defensive lineman next year. And he just hammers it and hangs on the rim and kind of looks at Tonka like, you know, what, what else you want? Um, so he's a little more athletic than he looks like for a little scrawny kid. Um, and he just he's, – he's one of those kids that just makes plays. He um, – he, back-to-back he, -back years at Dutch Fork on the road, scored a game winner. I think one of them was with about five seconds, five or six seconds, and then we had to hold them off at the other end. And then he – the, the, his senior year, he scores with .9 against him. He scores with .4 against River Bluff. So clutch and so good. We did a lot. And we, we really honestly did a lot of this because of our personnel. We, we played a lot of one-on-one -on -one at practice um, because we ran a lot of motion offense. And, and a lot of the basis of our motion was if you could find a matchup where somebody could take somebody off the dribble, whether they were going to get to the rim themselves or whether they were going to draw the defense and kick it out to somebody else. So we, we really – felt a need to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one and two-on-two -two work of being able to, to make a move off the dribble. And, and Carver's as good as I've ever had because he could get you all the way to the rim. He also could stop and pull up, like against Dutch Fork, who run the same type thing, and he ends up making a left-hand layup to win it. Um, this particular time, uh, it's a little more of a hanger in the lane because the defense kind of cuts him off, and, and they play it pretty well. It's, it's not like it's poorly defended. But – he just had the ability to score it. And, and honestly, if they had to run somebody at him to double, he, he would have found somebody um, with the ball. Um, so it, it obviously makes you look like a lot better coach. And, and I don't want to sound like it got real tricky because his dad pulled up a clip of, um, of the, that they showed on the um, 
the, the Jordan series that was on a while back here, um, you know, where, where Doug Collins just says, you know, we just give the Jordan the ball and get the heck out of the way. And uh, I think I, I think there I, I was um, on a clip quoted as telling Lou Bajay, I said, what'd you run at the end there? I'm like, well, give Mason the ball and get out the way. Um, you know, I'm definitely not not saying he's Michael Jordan, but he's one of those guys that you could you could give the ball to and get the right space and then let him make a play. And, and he just did it time after time. His kid just, you know, wasn't going to lose. And um, I, I think the one of his previous ones he had won without the ball in his hands, uh, they were denying him so hard at Dutch Fork his junior year. And we got him on a backdoor cut. And, and Bradley Folks hits him with a nice little pass for a layup. Um, so a kid that just knew how to play. And he had a really good year at Anderson this year as a freshman. But what I'm even – more proud of him. He had a 4.0 GPA both semesters at Anderson. Um, played a pretty good bit as a freshman. Just phenomenal kid and player. Um, and he's paired with uh, with the Ridgeview alum up there at Anderson. I think they're going to make a heck of a backcourt over the next. Crosby James up there at Anderson. Absolutely. Um, and Crosby came on and had a had a probably even even better year than Mason late year. I think Mason had a better first half of the year, and Crosby had a phenomenal second half. I think those two, forts all said and done, are going to they're going to make a lot of D1 coaches wonder why they're playing at Anderson. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, they got two steals right there. You're right. One thing I want to highlight too, coach is that, you know, is the mark of a great coach sometimes is to get the heck out of the way. We talked about it with coach Grimes in episode 37 from Demarest high school in, in New Jersey about his kids basically taking over a huddle late game and his kids just getting, get this doing the coaching. And he just re he recognized and said, there's nothing for me to say here. And I hear that in this story here too, just get the ball to Carver and just get the heck out of the way and let him do what he does. So I think that's, again, that's just the mark of a great coach too. So to highlight yeah i think you got to trust your players you got to you got to teach them to be able to make plays and you know because if you call everything and something breaks down then they've still got to make a play anyway absolutely coach we like to end it here on a fun question if i asked mason carver and i asked tim heskett or sheldon everett what's one thing coach harris always said over and over again to us what would be that one thing that, that that probably changes over the years, you know. As you get as you get a little older and hopefully a little smarter, it probably changed. Um, my um, my last team there, and obviously they knew I wasn't coming back, so they know there's no repercussions at the bank. But they kept giving me a hard time. <laughs> evidently, evidently, I went over personnel a lot, like you know, reminding them of tendencies of personnel. Because uh, Tristan Allen is going to Davidson to play football, put his little blue towel on his shoulder and gets up there and just, ah. now, guys, we're going to – we need to go over personnel again here. Like, you know, <laughs> we got it. We got it, Coach. We, we know what they're going to do. Um, if, if you ask me, I always like to say that I tried to tell my guys that, that going in – I'm not a big I'm, – I'm, I'm not a pep talk guy. I, you know, I, I can't fire you up for the game. My, my, my final message always wanted to be, I want us to play harder and play smarter than the other team. If we could play harder and play smarter. Um, but, like, when I did retire and they uh, they gave me a little get-together, they seemed to be giving me more of a grief about always being a guy that always, like, had a coupon or a deal or could save some money somewhere. That Somehow that seemed to stick in their mind. Jason Cotchcroft, uh, he had everybody just absolutely rolling out the door, um, making fun of me, uh, getting a good deal on something. I don't know why it would be a bad idea to get a good deal on something, but so you're thrifty. evidently, you're thrifty. Evidently, I could be a little over the top of that. So uh, they definitely would remind me of that. Well, you know, like as Chris has said on this show many times, you know they have in this case a a, a Coach Harris impression, and uh, it's my belief that uh, there's a direct correlation with how much they love you as to how many impressions they they do of you. So I know that. Uh, all your guys have loved you in their own special way and a super successful career coaching. And now I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing now with Ben Lippin and, and, and obviously you've talked about coaching cross country, but what, what do you have going on now over at Ben Lippin school? Yeah, I've kind of got a strange mix. I'm, I'm still coaching cross country at Lexington, um, but I'm not doing anything else during the day. Um, so it is easier to keep up with my athletes year round with that. Cause I can, you know, text them and call it and keep up with them. So that that's been good. And that, that keeps me, I've got a team and I'm coaching kids and my wife's still a coach's wife, you know, cross country is one of those sports where kids come over to the house, you know, long run Saturdays for pancakes and get a hangout and you still get a relationship with the kids. So I've still got that part of it. That's, that's kind of keeping me in the game. My role has been lip and it's just kind of an ever evolving. Um, I think I am called the 
uh, director of basketball, which I think means I'm kind of like the assistant AD in charge of basketball. I, I helped them hire some coaches, scheduling some different stuff like that. Um, I go to practices, but I, it, like it's different practices. I, I go to I usually go to about two a day. Um, if, if I went to the varsity boys practice, I kind of tried to be like an assistant coach, and because uh, uh, Coach Carr didn't have a lot of help, and um, I just you know hey give me a you know give me the scout team, give me the post players, you know I'd run a drill whatever, and that was great. Was, you know I didn't have to be the bad guy on anything. Um, and then come game day, I'm up in the bleachers. If I went to the girls' practice, they were shorthanded, and that's David Long, uh, who's one of my former players. Uh, I usually end up having to practice when I went to the girls' practice because he didn't have enough bodies. So I ended up having to, to lace them up, tie them up, and, and you know, at least play some half court or um, play some defense, which I'm not real good at anyway. Um, and, and if I went to the middle school or the JV practice, I usually ended up more of, you know, maybe even run a drill, but more of like some suggestions to coaches. Uh, on things to do or how we should, you know, how we want to teach things or something like that. So I guess kind of coaching advisor. And then the other thing that uh, I think one of the primary reasons they, that they hired me over there, I'm in charge of coaches development. And uh, that's still kind of a work in progress. What we did um, second semester was we, we, uh, we took the coaching 3D uh, book and it's a whole module and program. And we, we kind of went through a pilot program with four different coaches going through that kind of platform on how you want to coach kids in the three different dimensions. And um, I, I was working with a football coach, a soccer coach, uh, the track coach, and a basketball coach, and, and kind of trying to go through that. And um, we're, we're going to kind of try to build on that. I taught a leadership class, about 10 sessions of a leadership class. They met like during lunchtime for about 30 minutes with, with, with athletes from different sports. And we talked about um, different aspects of leadership and how to be a leader. Um, I, I was kind of the team chaplain for the boys and girls varsity basketball team, as well as a very shortened baseball season and track season where I'd go and I'd go to practice and I'd do a devotion with the team after practice uh, about once a week. So um, really kind of more working with coaches, but you still end up working with kids, which is, which is great. And I enjoy both sides of that, working with, with coaches and with kids. I, I like both parts of that. Well, it's it's a win to have you around any aspect of South Carolina athletics, and in, in this Appreciate case, Ben Lippin is yeah. They I know they are super fortunate to have you, and sounds like a great setup too to be able to <laughs> coach a little bit there in practice, and then like you say, get your tail in the stands for a game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I had to, I had to, you know, it it was funny that all the even skis are referees, so I guess because we have for you. They were all excited to see me, and every time I'd go watch, you know, like Dutch Fork and Riverbluff, they'd come up in the stands and talk like. Y'all are excited to see me now. Y'all never were that excited the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach Harris, we're going to – like I said, we, we just got to have you back for uh, for game three and game four. And like, we can go to game 16, game 72, you have 637 wins. You got a few of them in there. So, But uh, we, we can't thank you enough for, for coming on the greatest games with us. It's been a real, a real blast to have you on. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, well – for my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I am Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.